This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Praise the Lord. Amen. It's so exciting this morning, you all, that we are on Ascension Sunday. We're going to study in the Bible the teaching of Jesus as he ascended to the Father. This is an amazing day for us as followers of Jesus. So let's pray so we can get into the text that God's given us today. Father in heaven, we thank you for the ascension. We thank you, Lord, that in the ascension we are known and we are commissioned. We thank you that in the ascension we are given a great communion that leads to a great commission. Lord, we thank you that you love us in Jesus Christ, Father. So come now, Lord, as we're studying the scriptures, may our hearts also just sing the praises of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So May and June in the Midwest and much of our country is a kind of launch season. This is the season where there are high school commencements and students are launching out to their next thing. There's college commencements, there's launching happening there. There's often many weddings in May and June, and that's a certain kind of launch as well. These, these times come where there's a concrete ending to a certain kind of time that's going to lead and inaugurate and launch others into the next thing in their lives. And eight years ago, I was a dad with six kids. I thought a lot about, golly, what's it like when you launch a kid from high school or college or into a marriage? And eight years later, I've done that several times. And every time that happens, I always think, what is it for the wedding speech or what is it for the note I want to write at the commencement? What is it that I want to say? Far more interesting is what Jesus says at his commencement, at the commencement of those who are following him, at the launch moment where he is literally, actually, bodily going to launch into heaven, and he is going to launch his followers and through them launch us now into the work of the ministry, into the fullness of purpose that every follower of Jesus is given. Now, Jesus literally launched, and I want to make sure as you leave, stop by our great doors there. One of the squares, beautifully, a beautiful carving, has the ascension of Jesus. And traditionally, when you see an ascension of Jesus painting, you'll literally just see like his ankles and his feet. That's traditional. And it's there because it's saying Jesus bodily went into heaven, which is extremely important. What you don't see traditionally, but what our artists added, is there's, there's several people there, some angels as well. But there's one guy like right underneath Jesus like this. <laughs> and I asked the artist, is there any way, I, I, I know, but could you just do a, one bubble, like not bubbles on all the scenes, that would be weird. Just one bubble like, what? <laughs> you know? I hate that. No, we're not going to do that. So there's no bubble there, but now I have a little bit of power. Could you just think of that bubble when you see that? Like, he literally, I mean, really, like, it's, it's, it's powerful because he actually did that. He actually went up to heaven. And, of course, his followers are, what is happening? Like, there are his feet. Now we don't see them anymore. And what does he say? It's captured in Mark chapter 16. He says, essentially, you are known and you are commissioned. So look at that with me. If you have your Bible with you, go over to Mark chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. We have Bibles all throughout 
uh, the sanctuary, just grab one of those Bibles. You'll want to have something in front of you. Uh, 853 is um, the one that are in our church Bibles there. Open that up to Mark chapter 16, page 853. Okay, now when you get there, you're going to see um, in the English Standard Version, which is the version that we preach from, there's all caps and a bracket there that's, that, that, that notes some of the earliest manuscripts do not include the verses that I'm going to be teaching from this morning. Just quick note on that. The church has received uh, this section as Holy Scripture. I believe it to be like all Scripture without error, teaching the reality and the things of God. So we're going to preach right into this. But it does say that not every single early manuscript had it, but the early church saw it and said everything in it is completely consistent with the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Gospels, uh, the rest of the book of Acts. And we'll get into that. There are some interesting things in Mark 16. And we'll, we'll do a little bit uh, with that that you are interesting. Also, note that the Feast of the Ascension is not actually today, literally. It was celebrated on Thursday. And we just move it to the Sunday so that we make sure that we celebrate it all together. But it matters that it was Thursday because Thursday marks 40 days from the resurrection. And 40 is a launch number in the Bible. 40 years for the children of Israel in the desert before they launch into the promised land. 40 days for Jesus in the desert before he launches into the fullness of his ministry. 40 days of waiting and being with Jesus bodily as, he, as he's on the earth from the resurrection until he ascends. We're going to break this into verses 9 to 14, you are known. Verses 15 to 20, you are commissioned. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. We, we read that he appears to her. He had cast out seven demons from her. An interesting note, because we're going to hear about demonic uh, realities later in about in several verses. So that's connected. Uh, but the reality that the demons are cast out of human beings and need to be. He cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive, they rejoiced. They, they, they grabbed each other. They embraced one another. Everything that he told us about dying and resurrecting is absolutely true. Right. No, of course not. Right? What does it say? What does the Bible say? They would not believe it. It's implied almost a will. They would not believe it. All right. Well, I mean, it, it is about a man rising from the dead. So Jesus does this again. He appears to two disciples. This is chronicled with more detail in the Gospel of Luke, the road to Emmaus, which some of you are familiar with. He appears. The two of them, they experienced him. They go back and they tell the rest. And they're like, okay, the first time we didn't believe, but the second time, how could we not believe? And then, of course, we read, they did not believe them. Okay, now we're going to get to verse 14. Before we get to verse 14, some of you may have heard about the importance of an affirmation sandwich. Have you heard about that? That if you're going to critique somebody, what you want to do is you want to start with the bread on the top and say something really nice about them. And then you get to the meat, and then you're going to say something constructively critical. If it's in the Midwest, it's just a little bit less nice than the, the bread, right? But it's a little bit of meat. And then you're going to finish up the conversation with more bread about how wonderful they are. Now, by the way, affirmation sandwiches are great. I find them personally very tasty. You want to serve one up, you can serve it to me. But Jesus does not go affirmation sandwich here. Do you see this? Look at verse 14. That does not seem to be his concern at this point. For the commencement address, I would add. Here's how he begins his commencement address. 
Well, here, here's his posture. He appears to the 11 as they were reclining at table, and he rebukes them. Hi, everybody. I'm so happy to be here today for this commencement day. This is such a special time for all you graduates. I rebuke you. <laughs> but I, I just said that what he's going to communicate is he knows us. And when we hear that Jesus knows us, isn't that kind of an awe moment for us? Like, he knows me. And, and it is important because there is an awe. It, it's actually very precious that he knows us. We'll get to that. But when God knows you, right, he knows everything. And when God knows you, he knows the reality of your sinful nature. He knows and loves you so much that he's going to begin, in this case, with a rebuke so he can get to a right understanding of who you fully are. He's going to know you entirely. He's going to know the reality of your unbelief, and he's going to know the reality that you can't believe. And you can not only just believe, you can be commissioned with a life so full of purpose that the greatest challenge in your life should be, how do I manage all the kingdom meaning and purpose I have to handle? That's where he wants to take you. But he's going to start by uncovering your unbelief. He rebukes them for their unbelief because unbelief is at the heart of the sinful nature. If you're like, you know, I'm just struggling. Like, am I really a sinner? Because maybe there's certain behaviors that you've not engaged in. You're thinking, am I really a sinner? Let me help you right away. Let's be super honest about how profound our unbelief and our hearts and minds can be. I've got this wonderful friend. You guys have heard some testimony about him. Muslim background. He came to know Christ five years ago. We've told this testimony in different venues here in Resurrection and throughout the diocese. And this man, a few years into his conversion, is at a location where his brothers know he's going to be. They're sent by the family to murder him for his conversion to following Jesus. They come to enact their duty as they see it, and God renders him invisible. They can't see him. They literally can't see him, and they go away. And he walks free. Now, I heard that testimony, and I thought, I believe that. I actually believe that God rendered that man invisible. But let me tell you, this last week, I had circumstances pretty complicated, very challenging, somewhat taking my breath away, that are nothing like brothers coming to murder me. And I could not believe that God could have power in these particular circumstances to overcome some particular emails. I didn't believe it. I'm, I'm telling you right now, I, I'm struggling with it myself. There is no possible way to be a human person with a sinful nature, which is all of us, and not be rebuked by our loving God for our unbelief. So just take your rebuke. Right? Just take our rebuke. We are rebuked for our unbelief. Lord, it's true. We might even say, as, as the dear man in the Bible, he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But I have the sin of unbelief, it's true. I, I, I don't believe. I, there's no way I could judge those disciples for not believing Mary Magdalene. You wouldn't have believed Mary Magdalene. I wouldn't have believed Mary Magdalene. He comes in and rebukes us. That's where he starts. He uncovers our unbelief. Why? Why does he do that? Because he wants to know that you're known. And he wants you to start at that spot. We repent of our unbelief, and then we begin to move into belief. Because what does unbelief do? What does Jesus say there in verse 14? 
He connects unbelief with hardness of heart. Unbelief closes the heart. Unbelief hardens the heart. Unbelief crushes curiosity. And belief spurs on a holy curiosity. When we believe in God, when we believe in the truth of who Jesus is, when we believe in the Bible, we get curious. What else could God do? What might God do in this circumstance right here? What might God do with this person right here? How God might work. You get, you, you, you get a holy curiosity when you open your soul to belief. But if you move into unbelief and you're taken over by it, you get harder and less interesting and less curious. But now look what he does. He's now present with them. He wasn't bodily present with them when they heard about from Mary Magdalene when they heard from the people. He's now present with them. God's, God's presence brings belief. That's why it's so important to gather with the body of Jesus all the time. We have to come here because we, we walk away believing. Don't just think, oh, I feel better emotionally after a church service. That, that, that's ridiculous. You believe after a church service because you just were with other believers and you're just thinking about Jesus and focusing on who he is and you're filled with belief because you're in the presence of God. The presence of God dispels unbelief. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So he comes and he's with them. And then he says, after rebuking them, this is amazing. It's like, don't you need some like cooling off time? Like you just rebuked us. He's like, no, no, no. Uh, here's, here's, what, here's what I want to say to you. Go. Go away. No, 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 no. Go on my behalf. Because I know you. See, I know you. I know what you were designed for. I know what you were made for. I know that your truest, deepest nature is not unbelief. That's a sinful reality. And we won't be freed from it until we see Jesus face to face. But I also know who you were made to be. And I'm here to know you in your entirety. So I'm going to noble you and say, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is to all men and women, to all children. This is to all who follow Jesus. This is given. This being known is given. Okay, a little bit more on being known. Then we're, we're going to get to commissioned. Key to being known is the ascension of Jesus. Look at verse 19. We might be tempted to associate the ascension with absence. He's gone, the feet. We need to associate the ascension with presence. We need to associate the ascension with close communion with Jesus because it's out of our great communion that we receive the great commission. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand. Right, right hand is always a symbol of power. Sat down at the power of God. Sat down at the right hand of God. We are known... And we are known by Jesus, and we are known by the Father deeply because of Jesus' ascension. The ascension of Jesus is one of the great feasts of the incarnation. The ascension and the incarnation are deeply, deeply linked. Now, the great feast of the incarnation, we're often tempted to think it's Christmas, and it is a feast of the incarnation, but the great feast of the, incar of the incarnation is the Annunciation. This is when... Mary is literally overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, she conceives Jesus, and he becomes a human person at that point. And we deeply believe that all human persons conceived are human beings in the womb. So the incarnation started nine months before the nativity, which is the second feast of the incarnation at Christmas. 
And now we get a third feast of the incarnation at the ascension because Jesus bodily rises, which is to say there is a human person who has entered into the fullness of the Trinity of God. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is in the Trinity as a human person. And in doing so, he is representing who we are. He brings, he brings humanity with him. He has that very special place. He, he holds that special place as the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in that reality, at the right hand of the Father, so we are there present with the Father. Dr. John Clark, theologian, brilliant book, The Incarnation of God, also one of our deacons here at Church of the Resurrection. When he writes about the ascension, he says, Jesus makes, quote, a continual appearance with the Father. How could it not be that way? They live together. They live together in the same holy, divine house of the Trinity. They have a life together. He's making continual appearance. So how can the Father not know us? How could Jesus, who says, Stuart Ruck, how could the Father not hear the name of Stuart Ruck? How could they not go, oh, Stuart Ruck, I know Stuart Ruck. I know that name. My son Jesus carries that name upon him. He, he died for that name. He bled for that name. Of course he knows your name. Do you understand that Jesus says in John 14, 20, and this connects to the ascension, he says, I am in the Father, and you are in me. And I am in you. You have full access. You have full knowledge from the Father of who you are. And of what's happening in your life right now. And of your tribulations that never seem to cease. Or your deep questions or your unbelief that you're repenting of, or the purpose that the Father holds in his heart for you and your work. The ascension makes the ministry of the Father and the Holy Spirit more present to us, family of God. It's incredible. I am in the Father, and you are in me, Jesus says, and I am in you. I, there's just fewer things that are more important for you to believe. As a pastor, I, I would be challenged to find something else that's more important for you to believe than that that you're in Jesus by the forgiveness of your sins, and he's in you. And that you are with Jesus being ministered to by the Father in all of his power and glory. You have great communion. And out of that, you have great commissioning, a great purpose. Let's look at that. You are commissioned, verses 15 to 20. Now, this commission is an incarnational commission. What's happening here is Jesus incarnate is going to be bodily present at the right hand of the Father, but he's going to leave what he will call the body of Jesus on the earth. 
And in 10 more days from the ascension, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit will come. This is an incarnational commission, which is to say that we're to minister Jesus in concrete, incarnational ways. That leads to these five powers that are enumerated in verse 17, which we'll get to in just a moment. But what that means is that we in our bodies, with our voices, with what we write, with how we live our lives in so many different ways, we are incarnationally speaking the truth about Jesus. We are, as Jesus says, proclaiming the gospel, verse 15, to the whole creation. And later it says that they went out, verse 20, and preached everywhere. I, I just think that my default is to make this more complicated than it is. And I probably, as a pastor, have made it more complicated for you all than I need to do. This is not very complicated. Where do I go? I go somewhere I don't go? No, go everywhere. Oh, okay. How do I do it? Concretely, with your voice, with your presence, with accompanying signs? Okay. My friend, again, my, my friend who experienced that miracle from God, I was with him <clears throat> at GAFCON, and we were at a global Anglican conference in Kigali, Rwanda, just a month ago. And I was blown away that not only does he believe in the power of God and the resurrection of God, he, he, he does this. He, he just goes and shares all the time. So our very dear friends at Crossway Publishing House had a booth at GAFCON, and they were giving away free Bibles. My friend could not get enough free Bibles. I think he, I think he tilted out at four dozen, where he would go and get these Bibles to give away, and he was ministering to all the hotel workers that were there. He was passing out Bibles everywhere he went. It was unbelievable for me to observe. Now, he only speaks Arabic, but through Google Translate and a whole lot of really interesting kind of machinations, and I don't know what he was doing, people were engaging with him, and he's giving them Bibles. One guy crossed the line into salvation, one of the hotel workers. I'm watching this and so blown away and so rebuked in my own unbelief. You know, I took a deep breath, repented of my sin, and then I'm on the back of a, a motorcycle taxi, which are all throughout Kigali. It's very exciting. And I will say that when we finally finished and this young 20-year-old guy got me to our destination, I was probably so thankful to be alive. I thought, I got to share the gospel with this guy. So with my bad high school French, and I mean bad high school French, now... 40 years rusty. I'm doing my best with that. I'm doing what I saw my friend doing. I'm kind of trying to, you know, pantomime this thing out. He's working with his broken English, and I was able to share the gospel with him. Yeah, just following my commission. You can do that. You're called to do it. You have the communion you need to do it. You're commissioned to do it. The commission, only a incarnational commission, there's a power commission. You're given power to do it. And this is really important. And I think one reason why it, sometimes it's hard for us to evangelize and hard for us to engage in this commission is that I think, generally speaking, in our own communities, we're underpowered. I think we're underpowered, and I think we're underaccompanied. I don't think we understand what it means, verse 20, that Jesus works with us while the Lord worked with them. I'm not sure we understand, and, and now, now, let's, now let's go to the signs, you guys, verse 17 and 18. These signs will accompany those who believe, and to kind of 
to make that even clearer, he refers to them at the very end of verse 20 as accompanying signs, which is to say that part of an incarnational ministry, part of an incarnational witness, is that there are concrete signs that will go along with our work where people go, whoa, that was different. We say, not different, Jesus, concrete ministry of Jesus. You see this throughout the apostles' work, throughout the early church. They're ministering with what we call wonders and signs. It's the same idea here, but they're giving the adjective accompanying, which is saying, you keep company with Jesus, and if you keep company with Jesus, you will keep company with miraculous signs. They will be part of your work, because you're in communion with the risen Lord who has all power over all evil and supernatural strength. You're in communion with him. So as you live out your commission, then we need to be open to the signs that God will bring because of that. Open, curious, repenting of any unbelief we have when we read this and go, eh, not me. I mean, not here, not now. Let's be sensitive and attentive to that. The signs will come to those who believe. There's five different signs and five different powers. One is that in my name they will cast out demons. Two, they will speak in new tongues. Three, they will pick up serpents with their hands. Four, if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Five, they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So in some ways, I don't need to make any commentary on this. This is what Jesus said. So in part, we just have to go, oh, okay. Thank you. Yes, Lord. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But let's analyze them some. I'd say that what we see are maybe three different categories within these different five signs of power. The first category is the power over the devil. It's actually where we start. In my name, they will cast out demons. And then we see it again at the beginning of verse 18. They will pick up serpents with their hands. Okay, first of all, to be really, really clear, both of these things are seen throughout the scriptures. In Jesus' ministry, he is consistently in the synagogue, in the house of worship, as well as on the roads, he is casting out demons. And his followers are casting out demons. This is a very regular part of our commission and our Christian life, that demonic powers are cast off of people. This is a clear sign of Jesus overcoming the enemy and the devil. We see it regularly here at Church of the Resurrection. People who are afflicted with demonic powers, through careful prayer, often several different sessions of prayer, are released from demonic powers. This is to accompany our witness and our ministry. Indeed, for me, I have no issue with this because this accompanied my return to Christ over 30 years ago. After several years away from the Lord and, and completely immersed in, in apostate theology and, 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 and confusion, I came back to Christ and soon after that, I had a major deliverance of evil powers that were afflicting me. 100%, concrete. I thank God it's one of the accompanying signs. And I've seen it over and over and over again. I've been a part of it over and over again. We also have this interesting one. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. Well, that's actually what Paul did. That's exactly what Paul did. And I remember he gets bitten by a snake, comes out of the fire, bites his hand, throws it into the fire. It's not affected by it. So we can take this as a literal reality. This doesn't mean that we go after poisonous snakes, by the way. I'm not, that's not, that's testing, right? That's, you're moving into a different realm at that point. But spiritually, what is also an important interpretation here is, of course, the serpent, the snake, 
is the ancient form the devil took at Adam and Eve's unbelief nexus, at their unbelief juncture. And that what God has done in conquering the devil is he's conquered our unbelief. And he's given us a way to believe in Jesus, to come through to the Father, and to live in a community of belief with one another and Jesus and the Father and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is overcoming the devil. That's a spiritual interpretation and one that I would commend to you. Okay, that's the first two. Then we see they will speak in new tongues. This is taught very specifically. We see this in the book of Acts with Pentecost. We'll look at that next week. And we also see this taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 by Paul. I don't have time to go into the extensive teaching on this. But here I would say if the first two are the power of God over Satan and evil, this, this one is the power of prayer. Because the heart of speaking in tongues is the life of prayer and living in prayer. This is the power of prayer. You don't have to speak in tongues to be saved. It's not the teaching of our Anglican church. But throughout the world, in our tradition, people are very open to the gift of tongues for the purpose of prayer, for the purpose of praying with their spirit and praying with their minds. So here we're given the power of prayer, to engage in the reality of prayer, to believe in the power of prayer, to believe that when we pray, we enter into communion with Jesus, who has all power at the right hand of the Father, and that our prayers are heard by Jesus. Then when we knock, the door opens. That's exactly what he's taught. And then we get into the last two which I would categorize these last two as the power for the healing of the body. That in this incarnational mission that we're about, there's the power for the healing of the body. And this, this takes two different uh, specifics. One, they will drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And two, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Okay, a word about poison. My concern is that you might get so caught up on the poison that you miss all the power. Okay, so this is a unique uh, verse unique phrase. We don't see it specifically acted out in the book of Acts, for example, but it doesn't mean that it hadn't happened. It doesn't mean that there wasn't a witness of somebody who had done so and gave glory to God that they were freed from drinking poison. So as somebody that believes in the Bible, I say, oh, okay. Maybe we've underrated that reality. Doesn't mean that we go drink poison, but it does mean that we trust that God can work inside the body to heal us which is connected with the, with, with the last one, that we lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Entry in the poison piece, Augustine, who interprets it spiritually, which, by the way, if you have a hard time with spiritual interpretation, you're going to have a really hard time with all the early church teaching and a lot of the apostolic teaching in the book of Acts. It's not the only way to interpret, but it's one of the ways that is interpreted. Augustine says this has to do with theologians who need to read false teachers to understand them. And because they go into it with good intent to understand false teaching for the purpose of elucidating true teaching, they can take in the poison of false teaching and not be affected. But that was an interesting interpretation. Either way, we know that God works in our bodies. He works in our minds. The poison we've taken in, be it intellectual poison or actual literal poison or chemical poison, whatever it might be, that we can trust God. We can trust God. This is not that every time we pray for somebody, they're healed. That's a whole other sermon. And I'm so glad that some of you will preach that maybe even next week and explain all that to you guys. <laughs> it's a very important question, and I don't have time to get into it. But it is to say that we're called to lay hands on others and to pray for their healing. So these signs accompany. They keep company with us. They help us know Jesus is keeping company with us.
that he's very close to us, not just in a figurative way, but in a very profound, real, and concrete way. The great sign, of course, is the great sacrament of baptism, that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That's the great sacrament, sacrament of salvation. And then finally, as he concludes, the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. We're waiting for seven more days, if you will, for the Feast of Pentecost next Sunday. We're waiting for the power of the Spirit to fall upon us as Jesus promised. And in that, we have the full ministry of Jesus. He's working with us. His presence dispels unbelief. Oh, dearest family of God, you are known and you are commissioned. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.